welcome to another episode of the Pirate Monk Podcast. Yes, we're here and a very special episode it is because not only are we joined today by our co-host with the most from the left coast, Aaron Porter. Hey there, Aaron. Good morning. Uh, but we also have with us, uh, via the magic of the worldwide interweb from Atlanta, none other than the legendary Michael Leahy of Bravehearts. Hey, Michael. Hello, Nate, and hello, Aaron. Good morning to you. The uh, Wow. Oh, he really is. Uh, this guy has spoken on, well, how many hundreds of campuses do you think? Thousands, see? thousands, Nate. Tens of, tens of thousands. <laughs> Been doing it since I was about four years old. So tell him my story, man. <laughs> We're going to get to your story uh, later, Michael, and you have uh, you got a great story, but one that is not unfamiliar to the tribe that listens to this podcast, all of us who thought we were completely unique, found others with stories with striking similarities to our own. It's so good to have somebody who knows the terrain and has been guiding others across it for quite some time. Yes, yeah, nice to be uh, nice to be home. Yeah, oh, that's great, uh, Michael. You and I connected a few weeks ago at a radical mentoring conference. Yeah, we did. Yeah. What a great time that was. And, uh, and we got to hear your story. actually got to hear your story live for the first time. Mm -hmm. And uh, it prompted me to finally buy and start reading your book. <laughs> I, I apologize emphatically for waiting for so long uh, because it's a great book. And, and uh, we're, we really enjoyed your share at that conference. And it really, uh, as, as per usual, when you share the, on this kind of topic, uh, really touched a lot of guys. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's kind of shooting fish in a barrel, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, how are you doing? Give us an update, because it's been a, a while since we've heard from the Natester. How's things in the Franklin realm? Oh, you know, it's good. It's exciting. Uh, it is unpredictable. However, I tell you what, there are some wins in the Samson sales these days. I really... Do not everything, uh, a lot of things we can't talk about yet on the podcast, but some exciting developments uh, in the world of the Samson Society. Uh, I think Michael's a big part of, I know Aaron's going to be a big part of it. He doesn't even know it yet. This is going to be, this is going to be. <laughs> like, Surprise. Yeah. <laughs> Surprise. We're all coming to your house tomorrow, Aaron. <laughs> all developments will be held in the strictest. Strictest confidence. Strictest confidence. Hey, uh, what? I think we should go to the mailbag. Yeah, I'm really excited. Listeners, bless you. Uh, this, I'm actually glad we did this interview before, and it didn't work out audio-wise. It won't get into it. But at the end, I rebuked the listeners for not writing to us anymore. <laughs> and immediately afterwards, Nate sent me a whole bunch of letters that had been sent. So, uh, so I did, what does that mean, Aaron? Did they somehow <laughs> transcendentally pick up on your vibe? And they just started feeling, you know, I feel like I need to write to Aaron and Nate today. Now, yeah. I, I think what it means is here, as everywhere else in life, I'm the last person to know. <laughs> <laughs> So what yeah. do we got? Read us some letters. I want well, to hear something. Okay. All right. All right. All right. Here it comes. Here one comes from our good friend, uh, Justin. He says, hello, my degenerate brothers. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you asked for listener questions on a previous podcast, so I figured I would send one in. 
I try to avoid asking questions mainly because I don't always like the answer or the accountability that comes with having an answer. Well, here goes my attempt to ask. I notice I'm very good at hitting the cruise control button for life, staying in the routines and patterns that make up my day, uh, my day to day. I can easily avoid reading my Bible, praying, or any activities that would involve Christ. I don't doubt my salvation. And I question why this is so easy for me. And with my Southern, quote, Christian, unquote, upbringing, I automatically chalk this up as I must not have been sincere. Well, I know that's bullshit. I don't want to negate the power of the cross or salvation, but I have to wonder if I really love Christ, why am I this way? Uh, why, uh, uh, what can I do different? And what the hell do I keep doing wrong to get this way? It's not the first time. I want to change my life. I've been in a perpetual state of lazy or depression for more years than I care to count. I want breakthrough, but of course I want the easy answers for it. So any advice or suggestions would be great. I love listening to you guys. Keep doing the podcasts, please. The more the better. Listening to them helps me put my thoughts and feelings into words where I normally can't and also offers alternative perspectives that differ from mine. Thank you and God bless. Wow. That, that needs a whole hour-long cool. show, doesn't it? Yeah, 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 I mean, yeah. yeah. There is no quick answer to that. So, Nate, give it a shot. <laughs> well, you know, it is all about the daily disciplines. And yeah. that's, a, that's a crucial part of the path. We learn those disciplines. And what I found in my own experience is that I really need the help of my brothers just to do that. Not to shame me into it, uh, but the fact that, the daily disciplines uh, or my lack thereof remain a part of the daily conversation is uh, really crucial for me. Uh, I, I really resonate with Justin in that uh, I go through peaks and valleys when it comes to certainly spending time in my Bible, even times in prayer. Uh, right now I'm kind of in peak prayer mode just because there's so much uncertainty in my life and I'm, uh, and I'm afraid it's, it's, I tend to pray more in the Valley than I do when things are going swimmingly. Um, but I also have, uh, a, a stylus who, uh, talks openly about his own continuing uh, uh, battles in the area, and that helps keep the focus uh, on daily disciplines for me. What do you think, Aaron? Yeah, I, all of that, definitely having partners in it is huge. Um, the one discipline I find that helps at a heart level uh, is acknowledging God. You know, that whole trust in the Lord with all your heart. Well, mm -hmm. How do you do it? Don't lean on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge Him. Acknowledging God it seems to be one of those uh, practices that isn't talked about much, or we over-spiritualize oh, wow. it. Wow. Acknowledging someone is like they come in the room and you go, hey, there it is. I just acknowledge them. That's it. Oh, so wow. If I throughout my day, if I think, okay, God, seriously, today, I'd like to just acknowledge you. Mm -hmm. the, the way I do it is just with 
anything saying, hey, God, do you have an opinion about this? And just acknowledging that God does have an opinion about everything, like little things. I'll, mm. drive, I'll see a car I like. I saw a 64 Corvette yesterday in Paso parked. And I just said, hey, God, do you like this as much as I do? I love this car. Mm. Mm. By acknowledging God, I don't have to be like, oh, I got my 20 minutes in the word. Because frankly, I can open my Bible and not be with God. Yeah. Not even acknowledge God. And I've got 2,000 years of church history where most people were illiterate or didn't have access to a Bible, and yet they were able to grow in relationships with God. Mm -hmm. So it just, uh, for me, that's the heart-changing discipline, which is not complicated. It just takes remembering to make that choice in the morning and then trying to remember throughout the day. Acknowledge him. Oh, I love that, Aaron. Mm -hmm. I really love that. Thank you. You're welcome. Yeah. I, I thank you for the, for the note, Justin. That was, you, you asked, what'd you say? Am I crazy or why do I do this? <laughs> yeah. Every, I mean, this, you have described the, the common condition of man that mm -hmm. we, everything in our flesh is pulling away from a relationship with our Abba. Mm -hmm. And that's my flesh doesn't want me to be connecting. And so I shouldn't be surprised when my flesh takes me to flesh food and flesh places where it can feed and uh, suppresses my appetite for the holy. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. You have anything know, to add I, there? yeah, absolutely. The, the first thing that I thought of as I, as I heard Justin, you know, really making an emotional appeal uh, on that is, um, you know, I think, I think back to Paul, uh, I think back to the apostle Paul and, and how he speaks about, you know, the things I don't do that I want to do and, or should do and the things that I, you know, do that I shouldn't do. And I mean, he's just kind of, he's, he's expressing, I think both of them are expressing the tension. Uh, Andy talks, he's, he's done a whole speaking series on this. I love the way he brings it up. He says, you know, we have to recognize that it's our normal condition to live with a certain, within a certain tension, that the release or relieving of that tension is not our normal state. That's why we have the Holy Spirit inside of us, but yet we walk with, um, we walk with the flesh and that's our natural inclination, yet we're called to walk in the spirit. You know, that's why we, um, that we're called to holiness, but yet we live in an increasingly pornographic world. And so, um, to, I think going back to what you said, Aaron, I think it's important, especially for addicts like ourselves, uh, to, to acknowledge the truth, acknowledge the reality of our condition, right? We had to acknowledge that we had a problem. We had a sin problem. I think we need to acknowledge that we are prone to wander that it is, it is in our nature to not want to submit ourselves to God. It's in our nature to not consecrate ourselves to being holy. It's in our nature to not pursue that relationship with God. It's in our nature to fulfill the lusts of the flesh. And so that's, you know, that gets back to, yeah, the daily disciplines need to be in place. Connecting with others needs to be in place. Connecting with God and acknowledging his role in our life needs to be in place. Um, but I think also knowing, recognizing that, you know what, if, if after pleading with God to remove the thorn from mm. his side, you know, wasn't a request that God answered in the way Paul hoped he'd answered, all, all the more reason to keep him in relationship with God. 
maybe that's part of the formula that he uses with us and with this inclination we have towards pornography or towards, you know, booze or towards drugs or whatever our weakness is um, to, to escape in that relationship. This is kind of a remembrance for us of why we need God. Because in Nate, we talked about this before. If I was able to, if God really truly removed my desire to fulfill sexual temptation through into sexual sin, I'm pretty certain I wouldn't be spending much time with God. Yeah. There's, there's one encouragement too that I'd give, and I don't know why this has just been in my head for nine months, um, but the, the phrase, give me three months and I'll change your life. Mm. It, mm. If I know going into a life mm. change that if I just, okay, fine, I won't want to do it, but just give me the three months. Mm-hmm. This is just, this is spoken to my own heart. Like, come on, Art, give me three months. And you know everything will be different. Yeah. Uh, so we have to remember that, especially at the beginning of taking a step, uh, a courageous yeah. step, mm-hmm. and to make sure that first step uh, goes straight to some brothers so that I'm not alone and that this isn't about making promises, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. This yeah. is just about yeah. making some changes. But there is something about, you know, as they know in 12 step recovery, those 90 and 90, the 90, something about 90 days. Uh, yeah, that short stretch. All right. Hey, how about another letter? All right. This one comes from Jason. Guys, my name's Jason. I've been regularly attending a Samson meeting for a couple of years. I need your help reconciling what an appropriate response would be when a Samson member makes a statement to the group that I believe is not truth. So my basic question is, I say to the group, I disagree with a statement that a group member makes during a meeting. Oh, oh, can I say to the group that I disagree? I know that we are to make our statements to the group as a whole and not direct them at any one person, as those comments are best reserved for private moments between friends. So please listen to the meeting format. For context, my question comes from a meeting where pornography was discussed. Now, I'll not dive into details, as that would break strictest confidence, but I will highly generalize and summarize the comments to this. Looking at porn is not all that bad and in some cases does not objectify women. It simply meets a need of mine because I am single. I don't believe this generalization breaks strictest confidence, but uh, if you do, please reply that it does. Feel free to correct my interpretation of strictest confidence. No, this is good, man. Is it appropriate to simply say that I disagree with those comments to the group and leave it at that? Or is this situation exactly what the private moments between friends was intended to cover? Thanks, Jason. Yeah, meeting etiquette question. We haven't had one of these for a while. Yeah, 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 yeah. The the first easy answer is yes, this is exactly what a private moment between friends kind of a conversation looks like. Yeah. But I have a feeling that Jason is a little worried about the rest of the group and what they're hearing. As yes. Long as is this mm-hmm. giving other guys that are struggling permission. Yeah. Um, so what are your, what are your thoughts, Nate? Yeah. I think there is a way to counter that uh, graciously uh, and obliquely. What I would do if I were in the 
group is I would, you know, I would say thanks, whoever you are. I mean, that's that's where you are. Thank you for telling us the truth. I mean, that that a guy is at a point apparently where he's rationalizing his porn use uh, based on his situation. He's generalizing it, and uh, I, I've done that. I've been in, I've said those words not out loud, but I've certainly said them to myself. Did during my college years. Um, what I would probably then say is something like this. Uh, you know, my experience is different from my brother's here. Uh, I remember saying the same thing to myself uh, and not, you know, a feeling that I was uh, maybe even, even using porn to prepare myself for marriage or to stave off a more deadly sexual sin. And uh, I didn't realize at the time uh, how I was poisoning myself and my marriage day by day. Uh, and uh, I'd probably talk a little bit, but, but, but keep it to I statements mm -hmm. yeah. uh, so that we don't get into an argument about uh, porn. Right. Yeah. yeah how, would you, how would you handle it, Michael? Hmm. Oh, this is real interesting because this shows the – the difference in um, in the tool sets that we use. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm familiar with their, those kinds of scenarios um, from my days in Sexaholics Anonymous mm -hmm. essay, and I I loved the opportunity that they gave me to find this to find a safe place to be able to do a little bit of talk therapy, hear myself say things, but hear other people's um, you know, get other people's um, thoughts as well, not yeah. directed at me, but at, at the topic. Yeah. The safety was key. Yes. And, and I think, I, I feel like in that group, there would have been people with dissenting opinions uh, airing that, but in a way that wasn't demeaning to that individual. And I, I definitely think that that needs to be said. Uh, otherwise, those kinds of groups cease to be beneficial. Right. Um, uh, because that is for those of us who have struggled with sexual addiction, like I have for many years, um, a, a truly detrimental, uh, you know, falsehood, um, that again, I was at that place too. And, yeah. and a lot of other people have been the, um, and, and, and maybe this will tail well into what we talk about later on, Nate, but, uh, I think this is where I see the role of a mentor. Yeah. And, and the role of group mentoring being able to play out. So in, in group mentoring, again, you have to remember that it's, that it's group mentoring, not, you know, 12-step group or not mm -hmm. group think or what have you. Mm -hmm. We would, we still have the same rules in terms of, you know, you don't attack a person's opinion or where they're at and, and, and all that. Uh, but um, there is a leader, a, a clearly identified mentor. Mm -hmm. It's like a group being led by a Silas. Mm -hmm. And the Silas leads that group. It's not just a collective of whoever shows up that, that day. Yeah. Um, so uh, we would probably be a little bit more direct, have more conversation around the topic. Yeah. Uh, but the mentor would, I can assure you, would not allow that to be, to kind of remain as the, Hey, if you feel that way and you want to go on through your life, that's fine. You know, if not, and, and in terms of the one-on-one -on -one mentoring, again, it's wonderful to, to get guys to share honestly 
what they really think and really feel because there's no reason to to sugarcoat it you know to try and appease the mentor i tell these guys listen you can lie to me every time we meet you know i usually meet with my guys once a once a week for an hour mm -hmm. in a format like this or or by phone or in person but um you know they can tell me oh i didn't act out didn't have any struggles if they're lying through their teeth it's only hurting them it's costing yeah. them also uh, it's costing them a time. It's wasting my time, mm -hmm. but um, so it doesn't really serve them any purpose. Uh, but again, that's because that's there's a lot of differences between that format and a Samson group, and and right. uh, the other one is that we are very specifically focused on one issue and one issue only in Bravehearts, and that's habitual sexual sin. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. I I love uh, the the gracious idea you were giving Nate, um, mm -hmm. and I think at the beginning acknowledging that what he did actually did take some courage unless yeah. unless he's yeah. totally oblivious and incredibly socially awkward which is possible mm -hmm. if not he knows that nobody else in the church and certainly not in that room agrees and he's stepping out to say it and mm -hmm. so even though we all think this is like really a silly idea and mm -hmm. missing a lot of pieces of wisdom uh he, he is being open to telling a group uh, that. And so I think that gives an easy in that affirming someone in that way opens mm -hmm. them up to hear the rest of the story. And it sounds like uh, God's really put this on Jason's heart. So he's the man to, to sidle up next to this fella and say, Hey, especially if he's married, they're really an yeah. older guy that has been married and says, you know what? Uh, I, I, I have been where you're at. I've been single and I would love to talk to you about what you said. And I had some thoughts on it. Would you be willing? And asking for permission is the door into that. Yeah. Anytime yeah. you ask someone, can I speak to that? Um, when they say yes, there you go. The door is open. But if yeah. you just start mm -hmm. confronting it uh, because you have the truth and they have a lie. So therefore I have every right uh, well, they, mm -hmm. the conversation will go differently. Yeah, and you sh and you'll shut them down. They won't ever open up honestly again. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And and this can be done uh, with your local Samson group in the meeting after the meeting, which uh, sometimes turns out to be more valuable than the meeting itself. Mm -hmm. uh, sitting across the table from somebody uh, and having informal time. That's where I have taken the opportunity and I've overheard others on many occasions take the opportunity to follow up on a share. Mm -hmm. this, do you know what really sucks about this? Mm. This whole thing is totally applicable uh, to all of us in our marriage. Like how often do I affirm my wife's courage before stepping into something I think I disagree with? How <laughs> yeah. often do I ask permission to speak yeah. to something? Uh, instead of just saying, that's ridiculous, we need to do it this way. Like all of these principles would make my life better. And with our kids. <laughs> yeah, right? yeah, yeah, um, exactly. Yeah. No, you're all stupid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> next, next letter, this is dumb. Okay. All right. Uh, Let's do one more. Do we have time? One for more. more? Okay. Yeah, we got one more. Here we go. Uh, this one comes from Jonathan. And by the way, you guys, if you have a name that doesn't start with J, you're also allowed to send letters. <laughs> Way to pick up on the pattern. I'm noticing that. Yeah, I, yeah I, I went straight to the J's. All right. Hey, pirate monks. I just listened to the last podcast, and I had a question. Here's the situation. 
I feel like I've learned a lot about how to share emotional intimacy with other guys. However, I don't feel that I know how to do this with my wife well. I feel safe enough to be goofy and drop my cool card, so to speak. But I wouldn't say that I feel as safe with her as I do with my Silas or guys at the meeting. Likewise, she doesn't feel safe enough with me to share her emotional process with me. I'm not saying I want to share everything I share at the meeting or with my Silas, but I want to feel safe enough with her that I feel like she can empathize with me. I want to feel like she'll get it. I want her to feel the same. So, with an addiction in tow, how do I traverse this emotional distance? Yeah, there you go. There's a there's a minefield question. This is a whole nother show as well, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, no kidding. No, no quick answer on this. I love that he wants to have this. What a great what a great heart to desire yeah. to have this intimacy with her. There's a lot of uh, pieces of information missing for us to be able to answer this well, I think, such as how much does she already know about his addiction? So yeah. is, is this a, an opening to a new conversation or he just wants to be able to share in the journey with her? Um, so I think we can only answer it generally, but give us a general answer, Nate. Well, I do think uh, one, of, one of the things that I love about a Samson meeting is that we uh, seldom wind up focusing on a specific sin, uh, what, what, what uh, the moralists would designate as a sin. So we're not talking, you know, so, so seldom do we, you know, talk about the, the, you know, the merits of pornography. What we're talking about are uh, these deeper issues, the kind that Jesus regularly pointed out in his conversations with or his denunciations of the Pharisees. Um, and so I'll wind up talking about my greed or my fear uh, in ways, and, and I learned to do that first in this safe container that I found uh, in a 12-step room. Um, I, I don't uh, burden Allie with uh, the ongoing saga of, uh, you know, whatever form some kind of sexual temptation might take. I wish I was no longer sexually tempted. That's not the case. But Allie doesn't need to, to know, you know, where the needle is on any given day. She has a right to an honest answer to a direct question, and uh, she'll always get one from me. Which, pause, uh, pause there, because I think it's yeah. really important. Other guys could hear that and say, oh, okay, so I don't, have to, I don't have to be open with my wife. You and Allie are very clear. She has said, I don't need or want to know right. things. I just, I want to know you're telling somebody. Right. You know, like you guys have established all of that together. Right, exactly, exactly. So, um, but uh, it, it can really be, uh, yeah, in our case, it can be emotionally, uh, yeah, if, it's a, because Allie uh, has a hard time, as I think most women do, just looking at all of that objectively, because she's a female, not a male, and because she will tend to, anyway, that's a whole different, that's a whole different deal. But I am talking about it daily, and I'm talking about it with not just with my Silas, but I'll, I talk about it with the guys I'm Silasing, with the guys I'm walking with. Uh, but mostly what I'm talking about with them, and this is the conversation I, I can bring home, 
is I talk with my guys daily about where I am, what I'm feeling, what I'm thinking, and what I'm doing. Um, and uh, I learned to do that first with other guys. I think one of the, I, I, there are a lot of, my sense is that there are a lot of wives who feel kind of walled out and left out from the emotional lives of their husbands. Yeah. Um, and, and they, and they do, they do want to know. So Allie needs to know when I am sad yeah. and when I am angry and uh, when I am afraid and we can get closer when we can talk about where my heart is. See that, that is a great safe door in to, for, uh, which Jay was this again, Jonah, Jehoiakim. One of the J one of the J yeah. men. Yeah, this is Jonathan. Jonathan, thank you. Yeah. Um, that that is such a good safe door in where he can increase his intimacy by having the regular conversations where he's saying, This is this is the emotion I'm feeling. Um, and that will lead to conversations that might open some other doors, but his wife is going to appreciate that because that's another unknown factor here for what Jonathan needs to do is we don't know his wife and what her capacity is. Some, Mm -hmm. some wives are amazing partners in walking through these things. Others, it's a big struggle. Mm -hmm. Um, And and just to say things out loud, like, honey, I just, I'm, I'm having a hard time in these ways, but I'm afraid to talk to you about it. Because uh, I don't want whatever, like just to state it, say what it is, and she'll deal with that. Then uh, their reality, Silas's are easier to talk to because there aren't the same consequences. My Silas won't withhold sex from me. He's always ready. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> Yeah, so of, no. of course, of course, there's different consequences, and so to to just acknowledge some of those fears honors her because yeah. you're not trying to manage her, or handle her, or control her. You're yeah. bringing your honest self to her, and still being wise enough to know, okay, this topic uh, isn't helpful for her heart. So I'm just going to talk about the feelings behind it, not the specific act or the specific thing. Yeah, yeah. What's your contribution there, Michael? Um, yeah, I, I tell my guys that, you know, being involved in the group process is a great, uh, and, and especially dealing with the uh, awakening of emotions and feelings that have been suppressed and self-medicated through our uh, inappropriate um, uh, coping mechanisms. You know, this is a great uh, training ground for becoming a a good husband, for becoming a good father. Uh, We get to practice truth telling Mm -hmm. and sometimes we'll get slapped up the head, but the consequences aren't near as dire as when, uh, you know, we could create, you know, potentially permanent rifts between us and our our loved ones. And, and so um, the one thing I would, I would mention to this J men and particular that I kind of heard toward the end of his letter was he, he, he sounded to me like a guy who's still very much in process. Um, as he mentioned that, uh, you know, he doesn't have this with his wife, but he would love for her to be able to empathize with him and for her to be able to understand him. And I would just caution him to say, 
if you want to create those emotional connections with your spouse, I suggest that you start thinking in terms of what can you do to empathize with your wife, not what she can do to empathize with you. Mm. What, can you what can you do to understand your wife better? Don't approach her like, you know, I wish we had this ability to be able to communicate like I can communicate with my with my guys in Samson group because, you know, they understand me. They empathize with me. Why don't you understand me or empathize me better? I mean, he'll get slammed. Mm -hmm. You know, she's going to be like, well, idiot, you know, it's because <laughs> you're, you know, you're giving yourself emotionally to this group of guys, but you're not making yourself emotionally available to me. And mm -hmm. one of the reasons is because you start off right off the bat saying, well, when are you going to empathize with me? When are you going to understand me? And so that's, I think, just an inevitable part of the growth stage. It's, it's moving from the self-centered the self view of the world mm -hmm. into an other-centered view of the world, crossing over that chasm. And that is part of gaining emotional, uh, I call it the, the, the EQ, your, you know, your emotional quote, quotient, if you will, um, uh, the ability to be able to connect with others emotionally. And, um, and, you, and you really do have a responsibility and a need to do that with your spouse <clears throat> and, to, and to always be working at how can I make myself more available and do that better over time. So you got a great practice area to do it, uh, but understand that this is a process uh, that has its own cycle, that has its own timeline with your spouse. And much like you had mentioned, uh, I think, Erin, you don't really know. I mean, she may have been so traumatized by this that she shut down on you. Uh, we have, I have guys that I work with all the time where they basically, their story is their spouse is shut down. You know, they've created this kind of response in them. And so it's going to take a lot longer and a lot of work and maybe some outside help for her to be, the, to, to be that kind of a, an emotional partner that you may find in your group. I think all guys that go into this recovery process and have the benefit of a safe place to be able to go and be fully known and fully, you know, fully know others we find it incredibly refreshing and we want that in all of our relationships. But then, you know, we scratch our heads going like, how do I do this with my wife? And it's just, it just takes time. So. Great questions. And we want more of them. We covet your questions. Uh, so you can send them to. Pirate monk podcast at gmail.com. And we will be right back to hear the story behind the man who is casting out pearls of wisdom for all the listeners to hear. We'll be right back on the Pirate Monk Podcast. There was a time Takes a hammer to his heart. 
are back on the Pirate Monk Podcast. Uh, I want our listeners uh, to get better acquainted now with Michael Leahy, who, uh, thanks, Michael, for stepping in on uh, the mailbag portion of the program. That was great. That was fun. I love it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Maybe we'll get to the rest of the alphabet next time. (laughs) (laughs) Now, it turns out you and I are... Uh, contemporaries in a lot of ways. We're roughly the same age. We've been in recovery uh, roughly the same amount of time. Stories went in different directions, but um, can you, what I really want to do is I want to talk about mentoring, but before we get there, Mm -hmm. kind of put us in context. How did you get where you are? You didn't, you didn't just decide 15 years ago when life was all peachy and wonderful that you would, uh, Oh, maybe go get a graduate degree in mentoring or something. Or, or you know, just share, <clears throat> go around and tell people about uh, my relationship with pornography and yeah, yeah. masturbation and orgasm and sexual acting out, all that kind of fun stuff. You, you, yeah, didn't yeah. Have that, you didn't have that on your career plan, Nate? Was not on my career plan, no. no. Was so you, funny. You, you should have had a different counselor. In, in high school, I took one of those tests that tell you your career, and that's exactly what it said I would be doing. <laughs> It said you'd be talking about your sexual addiction. Is no, that I'm it? Just looking at pornography and masturbating. Oh, just looking. <laughs> really? Yeah, I didn't take <laughs> the test. It was a weird test. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I didn't take the test. I was off looking at pornography and masturbating. <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's so right. So with that said, go ahead. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, you know, the the age. My age tells all. I'm 58. Um, by the time your your listeners hear this, I may be 59. I got a birthday in a couple of weeks. Um, oh, I thought that was a comment on how long it takes us to upload these things. That's good. yeah. I have a I have a birthday in nine months. So, <laughs> but uh, but very good, Aaron. Very quick. Um, no, I you know I mentioned that because most guys to my age and I, you had some of this as well, Nate. You know we. Uh, we get to tell the the stories like, you know, grandfathers talk about walking, you know, three miles in the snow to get to school. And so, yeah, I grew up with uh, magazine pornography was it. Actually, my first exposure was when I was about 11 years old to uh, a, um, a bunch of guys at school looking at a deck of playing cards with pictures of naked women on the backs of them. So obviously this wasn't as nearly as accessible uh, and readily available uh, then uh, as it is today. But so, so my ramp up, if you will, in my relationship uh, with pornography that lasted for uh, essentially 30 years, three decades, um, was a slow ramp up like it was for most guys my age. Hard to get to the material, but I took note <laughs> of what I saw, liked it, wanted to go back to it, uh, found that um, one of the drivers of me uh, pursuing the material uh, after getting over the, the novelty of it, you know, being the main driver was really this idea of being accepted by my peers, uh, to, to laugh at the dirty jokes, to snicker at the, at the pornographic images, you know, when someone would bring them to school or we'd be out and, you know, over at someone's house looking at their dad's stash, um, was to be accepted, you know, was to be one of the guys. And for me, that happened at a time when I had actually moved from, uh, where we used to live in LA up to a place called Spokane, Washington, which I thought was, you know, God's version of hell on earth, uh, two and a half feet of snow, 32 degrees below zero. Um, and it was Thanksgiving. So, you know, uh, leaving the nice sunny beaches and Southern, you know, uh, Southern California lifestyle, uh, into this place. And then of course, to be as a 
as a fifth grader, uh, ostracized by your friends and treated as an outsider. I, I had a deep gaping wound inside of me that cried out for acceptance. Mm -hmm. And and pornography just happened to be there at a time that uh, that also um, uh, moved me from what had been a kind of, kind of a tormenting uh, life as a kid in school being bullied pretty severely, which you probably wouldn't imagine with my size now, but um, but back then it was very real to all of a sudden the bullies being in that circle of friends looking at pornography that if I snickered along with them and and laughed along, then I was one of the guys and I wasn't being picked on. So it, originally it was kind of a survival response. It's mm. like I either laugh at this or or I, you know, look at it with a Paul and uh, and the torture becomes worse. But um, but I just share that part of it because all through my life, as I'm sure you guys can relate in your own way, uh, there was always a core belief that was closely aligned with my relationship with pornography. Over time, as I got to the material, it became more about this is what it means to be a real man. And so, you know, being sexual with girls, having them want you sexually, uh, them making themselves available to you. I felt like, uh, you know, being that guy meant that I was being a real man. And, and of course, you know, thinking for sure that this was going to go away when I met the woman of my dreams, which I did, uh, a, uh, you know, sorority girl from University of Georgia that was a year out of school. I was an IBM, you know, a new IBM uh, uh, sales guy working out of Seattle. And, um, you know, we, we hit it off and it moved from there into engagement to be married. And I thought, well, surely this is going to go away. I, I won't have to ever worry about this because she will just magically be able to meet all of my needs, uh, including my sexual needs. <clears throat> and then, of course, what happened was it got worse um, as I had to deal with, uh, you know, her her stress or the stress of, of marriage, you know, her, her issues, her PMS, you know, her, her things that I'm learning about uh, that uh, I didn't remember seeing when we were dating. And of course her having to deal with my stuff. And so it just ramped it up. But um, really the biggest jump for me, I mean, it was always a very close personal, but hidden relationship with pornography and with masturbation and with acting out. Um, but it really took a, a, a big hockey stick turn up uh, around the mid 90s <clears throat> when I happened to be in the technology industry. And so I was using the internet internally within our business uh, long before people knew what the internet was in the general public, which meant that I was, I, I knew the people that knew how to get to porn when internet porn first came out. And so I became an early adopter of sexual, of internet porn addiction. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, and back then we would use, uh, high speed corporate networks to access the material because no one was looking for it. Mm -hmm. You know, no one was doing audit reports or filtering it or what have you. It was only later on when, um, you know, that started to become a known issue that, uh, I shifted over to using it in my personal, you know, time and at home. Uh, but then again, that's when you could start to get faster access at home. So, uh, you know, bottom line is I had a 30-year relationship with pornography that continued to escalate, that really got accelerated in the mid-90s. And by then I had uh, been able to see th some new genres that I wasn't familiar with before that, um, that, were, um, that more, were more arousing and, um, and uh, you know, got me deeper into the pit, into the hole. 
always had a theme that I pursued of uh, typical of porn, right? Of the guy uh, acting dangerously, you know, uh, having sex with his secretary or someone that was out of bounds. Uh, and I was married, I've been married for 13 years, always had fantasized about that. And then one day I was in a business with my brother uh, where he was living in Seattle. I was living in Atlanta at the time. So I didn't have any accountability at all. Um, was my own boss, basically. And a, uh, a client came to, or a customer, a prospect came to our business, was looking for a pretty big order uh, in the, the business I was in. <clears throat> and, um, and she was 20 years younger than I was and started hitting on me. And I responded to that. And it's like, this is the perfect woman from porn. This is, she, she looks like the person I'd fantasized about. She acts like her, had the personality, you know, everything. She's younger. She's, I think, wealthy, all these things. And it was the perfect storm for me. And I was just in a fair waiting to happen. And she was porn with skin on. And so I jumped into that uh, un, unapologetically. Uh, was uh, my wife suspected uh, within a couple of months that something was going on, asked me about it, and I very arrogantly said, yes, I'm having an affair. And that's really when all hell broke loose. It, it wasn't really until a um, about a month or two later that uh, the first gift, the gift of authenticity, um, uh, came into my life and that a very close friend uh, approached me and said, Michael, I have something to share with you. I'm, I have, I'm a sex addict. I have a, I'm addicted to pornography and, and I have a sexual addiction. And I remember my response. I thought, well, uh, first of all, why are you telling me this? <laughs> and secondly, what is that? You know, what is sex addiction? And so he said, you know, well, he started to, to tell me, well, uh, the reason I bring it up, he gave me the, 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 the textbook definition of sexual addiction, still didn't understand what he was talking about. And he said, the reason I'm bringing this up to you is because I've been watching you and listening to you over the last couple months and, you know, talking about how, you know, Patty's not enough and this other woman is amazing and she's your soulmate and all that. And, and he said, I'm just wondering if maybe you don't have the same problem. And of course my response was, well, thanks, but no, thanks. I appreciate <laughs> you for oversharing and um, move on to another topic. But he said, no, wait a minute, just, just before this person didn't live in the same town. He's, uh, we were on the phone and uh, he said, before you dismiss this, let me just share with you a little bit about my story. And he started to share his story. And within two minutes, uh, much like when we, Nate, you know, took a walk and started to, to really share our experiences. I mean, it's like, wow, did this guy like grow up with me or was he, was he in the same house or what? I mean, how does he know, how, how could we have done all this same stuff? Because that was a secret. I hadn't told anyone about what I was doing. And that was the first gift that I received of, um, wow, I'm not in this alone. Someone else actually, that there is a name for this. And so I went online and took the 25 question sexual addiction screening test and of course blew that out. And, uh, and realized that I had a deeper problem and, and went on a walk with my wife at the time, Patty, and told her, oh, by the way, I think I have a sexual addiction. And she's like, geez, you know, what else? You know, get you in an affair and now you're a sex addict. You know, what else you got? I mean, throw it at me. Um, but amazingly, she was one of those women who really fought for our marriage much harder than I did. And I was one of those guys who recognized that he had a problem, didn't recognize the depth of the problem, but knew I had a problem, but 
I wasn't willing to get well. I didn't really want to give it up. I didn't want to give up my affair partner. I didn't want to give up the porn. I didn't, I mean, that was like my best friend. Uh, and um, so I played, I played games with it. I faked my recovery for two years. Faking my recovery cost me my marriage uh, at a time when I had all the research, many more resources made available to me than most guys did back then, including, by the way, a guy who was willing to be my mentor. And I turned them all down because I just didn't, I wanted to have my cake and eat it too. So that ended up being what cost me my marriage, divorced in 98, became suicidal in 99, uh, as I had come to the realization of what I had done, <clears throat> had lost my wife, by now had lost my fair partner, discovering she was with about five or six other guys who were married with kids. And, you know, I'd found, I, I wasn't saying that to, to uh, demonize her, I just, I found the perfect partner in porn, right? All about the sex, there's no emotional connection, uh, no commitment, and um, and and yeah. So I got exactly what I was looking for, uh, but it had a, a a really bad hangover effect to it, and and dropped me into a deep depression. Uh, it was only in it wasn't until I was suicidal, and started thinking about what I would write in a suicide note to my boys that somehow that just was the the straw that broke the camel's back, and I I fell apart. I I fell into uh, just a crumbled mass on the <clears throat> on the floor of my apartment in uh, in Atlanta, <clears throat> long ways away from my boys and the neighborhood that we lived in and the ball fields that I coached him and and you know played with them at. I was in a sterile corporate environment and some corporate apartments and and I just I came to the end of myself. Uh, I cried out to God in a way that I had never cried out to God. And this from a guy who was a, a born again believer that accepted Christ when I was 27, um, in part through, because of Patty, because of my wife and her family and their testimony. Uh, but I knew that I had drifted from God. I had basically turned my back on him and walked away. And, um, and I thank God for that moment of brokenness of, uh, finding the, finding my rock bottom, because I know now that it could have gone, it could have gotten a lot worse. Um, we could have been burying someone in our family, my, my wife or my kids uh, or myself. Um, but that was the moment when uh, I cried out to God and I, honest to God, feel it felt God speaking to me, not in an audible voice, but I, I could tell it just like he was. And I remember him saying, Michael, I'm right here. <clears throat> I never left you. You left me. And the very next thing I remember doing was this just guttural, God, teach me how to talk to you again. Teach me how to pray to you again. I had estranged myself so much from my God and my Lord and Savior that I, the, my first admission beyond help, you know, I'm, I'm at the end of my rope, was I don't even know how to talk to you. And that started a, a long, slow climb out of the pit that has essentially brought me to where I am today, uh, living out the 12th step, if you will, of uh, being able to take my story and my experience and, and, and allow God to use it to leverage uh, and, and, uh, and help others. And I, I always tell people, you know, if you give him a chance, God will use your story for his glory. And so, that's kind of my existence now. At what point 
after that, and thank you for sharing the story, by the way, um, did you start, I mean, you wrote your first book, which I, mm-hmm. I got years, how long ago was that that you wrote Porn Nation? It was a couple of years after Nate published his book. I think it published in 2007 or 2008. Yeah, I really yeah. enjoyed that book. So at what mm, point thanks. did you, you know, hit your rock bottom and start climbing out and discovering uh, life, uh, real life? Uh, yeah. When did that turn into a career, basically traveling yeah. around debating Ron Jeremy, stuff like that? You know? <laughs> Just little things like that. Yeah. Um, it it really, you know, I took a couple of years uh, to really work on my recovery. Wasn't planning on getting into this, but you know, there was just this this very clear call that I felt from God. And also a very scary thing that happened when I was in the midst of all this with my um, with my with my wife Patty where she, I remember her coming out of the prayer closet. This was where she would just open up to God. We were still married, still living together. Um, but she's trying to deal with, you know, life with an unrepentant sex addict, right? Who's faking it and playing games and driving her to suicidal thoughts. And uh, I remember her coming out of her prayer closet one day and she said, uh, God really spoke to me today about you. And now, again, remember, I'm the self-centered egocentric, you know, compulsive line, pathological line, sex addict, uh, hearing this. And I'm kind of like, you know, oh, well, what's that? She said, he's going to make you a mouthpiece for this disease. Mm. And I remember hearing that going, eh, thanks, but no thanks. <laughs> you know, it's like, I don't, I don't think that's going to happen. Right. I mean, I'm sitting there still having thoughts of my affair partner. When am I going to see her next? You know, porn acting out all that. And, um, but that's what ha- that's what's happened. I mean, uh, God created. I put it this way: I never went looking for this ministry. God brought this ministry into my life as a as what I believe is a normal progression and part of the healing process. If you're not getting well, uh, you you're not going to ever be in a position to want to help other people out of this pit because. Once you start to get clarity and start to see how how much this has robbed you of life itself, there's no sane, compassionate man or, or person on the face of the earth who wouldn't want to go help someone else when they're healthy enough to be able to do that. Mm. Uh, I didn't think that I was going to be doing it for a career, but um, God just opened up the doors and then it was very clear. It was kind of funny. I was telling Nate... I had I had actually made a run at trying to do full-time ministry in this area before I was ready. Had some wise people come alongside me and say, you might want to work on your recovery a little longer, you know, which I did begrudgingly. And uh, at that moment was in a job change, uh, switched over to another company, had the best job that I'd ever had in my life that could make the most money had a perfect sales territory. I was in technology sales, working for a global 50 company. I had it set up to make a lot of money and to do it with a guy who was a recovering alcoholic himself. He, uh, he totally supported me and everything. I mean, it was just golden. It's like, wow, I could see myself doing this the rest of my life. And nine months later, it was like nine months into it. I, I was miserable. I was absolutely miserable because, uh, I knew that, I was supposed to be doing this. And uh, all of a sudden, when not when they were about to fire me, (laughs) 
but actually I was doing really well when things were at the very best. It's like I sensed God saying, okay, now, what? <laughs> no, no, no. Let's do this in a couple of years. Let me get some money in the bank. You know, it's like, nope, now. And so I took my last paycheck from corporate America on February 28th of 2002. And that's when I started Bravehearts. And the first person that I turned to was Reggie Campbell, mm. uh, who Nate referred to. We met at uh, his, uh, uh, at his radical mentoring summit. Uh, <clears throat> Reggie, I had approached a year before with the mindset of, ah, if I can make this work, you know, I'd love being able to do this. And he was unimpressed. <laughs> and this time he reminds me that uh, he said, you know, the second time around, A, you didn't ask me to be a part of this. He, in, he invoked himself into the ministry. He basically said, yes. And I was like, yes, what do you mean? Yes. And he said, uh, yes, I'll be on your board. And I said, well, I've, I haven't asked you to be on my board. And he goes, well, you're going to have a nonprofit. You're going to need a board, right? But yeah. And he goes, yeah, I want to be on that board. This is a guy who Nate will tell you has probably turned down hundreds of offers to be on boards of directors, right? Very, very successful uh, businessman, Christian, uh, wonderful man. But, um, but yeah, coming to, uh, coming to Reggie, he said, the difference now that I see is <clears throat> before it was like, if I can make this work, if I can make the numbers work, I'll do this. Now, I think I just heard you say, if I have to do this out of the trunk of my car, I need to do this. This needs to be done. And he said, I want all in on that. And uh, it has been the most amazing journey. Uh, I would not give up this last 15 years of being in full-time ministry for anything. I constantly, I probably tell my guys that I mentor, I love them more than I do my wife, you know, just by sheer number, because I talked to so many of them, just spent a weekend uh, retreat with a bunch of them at, uh, at a nearby lake. And I mean, I truly love these guys uh, because, uh, you know, I see myself in their story. We're all just, you know, like you say, Nate, we're all just bozos on the bus. Mm -hmm. And I love my bozos, you know, <laughs> I love this bus. Mm -hmm. And I'm I'm so sad saddened that uh, so many people in the church shun, uh, you know, the guys that we love and know. And I, I see every single guy as redeemable, and I think that's what gives me the passion to do this ministry and the passion to just connect connect instantly, immediately with guys like yourselves mm -hmm. who who are also in this area of ministry because I know that this is not for the faint of heart. Yeah. So, so tell us about the transition into radical mentoring, not just mentoring, because mentoring sucks compared to <laughs> radical. Now, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Okay, well, actually, ra actually, radical mentoring is Reggie's gig, but uh, oh, okay. what, what well, I'm doing that, that is really radical. Then. You yeah, are mentoring. Yeah, that's <laughs> what I was talking about. It's the best. <laughs> but it, but it actually, it is, a, it is a radical form of mentoring. But let's just say Bravehearts mentoring for, for sake of clarity so we don't confuse people. And I send all of these people over to Reggie's website. <laughs> um, no, the mentoring thing came late in the game. I mean, I was doing, uh, for the first year or two, my focus was on helping guys who were, who were struggling. Uh, and uh, I was doing it in very personal ways, like starting telegroups, you know, teleconferencing-based recovery groups, essentially. Uh, just trying to, to, to get, to help as many guys as I could from falling off the cliff, right? And, uh, and then, you know, that, that 
was great, but it was hard to make a living doing that, you know, working with about 12 or 13 or 14 guys and not having any scale, scalability at all. I didn't want to be a counselor or a therapist and thought I, there's no way I ever want to do that. But then, um, you know, what happened over time was pretty amazing uh, by a sequence of events, in part one of them being uh, being a member of the largest, what's now the largest church in America, um, North Point Community Church, Andy Stanley's church. Somehow he heard about my story. Again, I, w I didn't go looking for it, but he approached me, asked me to come speak to, uh, well, he and I went for a walk. That was one of my first walks, Nate, by the way. Mm. Uh, he said, let's go for a walk. I have some questions for you. And he just really wanted to understand this area better, didn't know uh, why his pastor friends were struggling and leaving the ministry over this issue. Um, uh, off of that share and conversation that we had, he invited me to come speak to their staff of 120 men or whatever. Uh, they have about 200 plus staff. And I spoke to the men, someone else spoke to the woman. And then out of that came a, a, a uh, basically coming into Sunday morning service and uh, with my ex-wife, and I still don't remember how in the world we pulled that off, but uh, she, she and I had been divorced by then uh, for a couple of years. She had remarried, I was still single. But Andy invited us to come speak and share our story at North Point, and uh, uh, and we did. And the the series is called Exposed. If anyone's interested, you can go to my website at bravehearts.org and watch the video. It's on the homepage. Um, and we and we shared our story. And out of that, uh, about the same time, um, I had been discovered, or my story had been found out by people at ABC News. Uh, 2020 was trying to do a story. They've been looking for someone for two years to be able to interview a couple, and uh, who was still married, but you know, dealing with the issue of sexual addiction. I told them, "You're not going to find them. You're not going to find anyone who's going to go public on that. I will probably be the closest you'll find." And my wife and I divorced over it but we have an amicable relationship and we'll talk about it. So anyhow, long story short, I did a lot of public speaking, a lot of media appearances. The book deal came out of that, wrote five books, uh, traveled all over the world, did a lot of stuff with Campus Crusade as an evangelist, using this as using my story as an evangelism event. And, um, and I think we just lost Nate, but um, <laughs> did he disappear? Oh, well, that's all right. But did a lot of did a lot of travel around and um, and essentially uh, was flying over this issue at about the forty thousand foot level and not really going deep or long with guys because I was the awareness and education guy. Okay. And so um, so in the process of doing that, um, I, I feel like we did a lot of good. We we helped get you know raise a level of awareness on this issue. The Ron Jeremy porn debates were kind of a part of that. It's kind of a fun thing probably a whole separate segment in and of itself. <laughs> yeah, I'd love to. Yeah, yeah. There's some great stories there, really great stories. And he's still a friend, by the way. But uh, I like, uh, love that guy, actually. Uh, don't love what he does, but love, love him. Um, but uh, anyhow, so, you know, about, um, I guess about 10 years into my ministry, uh, through a set of circumstances, I'd uh, met Chrissy, my wife, and uh, actually gotten remarried. Uh, she was in the army. We were assigned to to uh, to the Washington D.C. district, and so we moved up to Northern Virginia. And I was away from kind of my support base and the things I was doing up until then, uh, which was a lot of traveling and speaking and all that. And uh, just my schedule started slowing down. Guys continued to come to me asking for help, and all of a sudden it was kind of hard to say no. So. Uh, I took on a couple of guys and just said, listen, I'll, I'll walk through this with you one-on-one. -on -one. 
uh, pulled out all my recovery material that I'd use, the Faithful and True Workbook by Mark Laser and some other stuff, and uh, just started meeting with them for an hour a week, one just one on one. Um, and uh, and you know, two people grew into ten, grew into twenty, and uh, long story short, after five years, I've mentored over a hundred men, about a hundred and twenty now. Uh, some of my my first guys uh, that I started working with six and a half years ago, I'm still mentoring them. Uh, and uh, I basically built that as the centerpiece to our ministry now. And I really believe that the mentoring model works uh, really well in this case. It's kind of like um, it's kind of like a Silas on steroids, if you will. Uh, but it's a different it's a different approach because I'm working with mo- many guys, whereas mm-hmm. most Siluses can only work you know can only really work with a handful of guys without making it a full time job. I have created a full time profession. Uh, out of this and, and a model to help other guys who want to, not just men, but women who want to be full-time, what we call sexual integrity mentors. Uh, and if they want to do that for a living, I've got a model that will pay you well and uh, will be self-sustainable. <clears throat> and that's what I'm doing with Bravehearts now. We're in a multiplication model, trying to replicate this. And I've gone through and had held my first couple of training sessions of uh, new mentor training and certification. And our goal is to put a sexual integrity mentor in every church in America um, nice. within the next, within the next 10 years. That's so. great. So what kinds of people that, that are listening right now are mm-hmm. the target of Bravehearts ministry that you say, okay, if, if this is you, you should seriously think about this. Yeah. Well, the, the great thing about this is, is really we're looking for the same thing you guys are looking for. We're looking for more bozos on the bus, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's guys who are looking for freedom. Uh, I still, um, I still uh, manage my own mentoring practice, uh, but we've developed a, a, a mentor training and certification program that I present to my guys that I'm working with and say, listen, want you to be free from this. You can be free from it. And by the way, you're going to, at some point in time, probably want to help others. And you can do that in a number of ways. But if you feel called to, to actually mentor and, and you want to turn this into a career, I feel like I have the best job in the world because I get a front row seat at life change and transformation. And I get to be, I get to go deep and long with guy and develop guys and develop great relationships with them. So, you know, now you're not going to go through mentor training in your first month of recovery, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, we're, we're looking for guys that have bare minimum a year of sexual sobriety. So for the guys that are ambitious, uh, but, uh, but, you know, but want to, want to get there at some point in time, I say, let's focus in on you first and getting you well. But then just know that there's a possibility of, of, you know, doing that or even just, you know, leading a group and kind of a stepping stone, more like taking a Silas role um, mm-hmm. uh, in, a, in the process of becoming a mentor. Now, there are some people out there who, you know, like you guys are the seasoned, I've been in recovery for X number of years, they've had all this sobriety, and I'd kind of like to, to learn how to do this, or I'd like to be able to do this just to become a better uh, help or a better Silas, perhaps, to the guys that I'm working with, or maybe work with more people in my church or guys that come to me. Um, and so uh, we get a ton of people that are coming into the training now for that. Uh, so it's it's fun. I mean, I I've kind of gotten it to the point where it's like if you've if you've got a couple of months of of strong sexual sobriety, but you're in your first year of recovery and you want to go through the training, go through the training. You know, I'm not going to certify you as a mentor until you're a lot further down the road. 
but you know, go through the training. It, it can help you. It can help you be much better at you know giving that help to others. I love what you'd say, Nate, in terms of you know everyone that, that the guys that that we work with, we believe that everyone needs help and they have help to give. Mm. So uh, this is something Nate and I have been talking about in terms of how. Uh, your um, your model of a Silas and our model of a mentor, sexual integrity mentor, could really work well, and I could even see it as a logical progression for for some guys. Mm-hmm. So, how do people connect with you and uh, the different? Because you have a few different programs that they could check mm-hmm. out. Uh, mm-hmm. wh- where do they go? Yeah, they go to BraveHearts.org. So it's just like the movie Braveheart, but with an S on the end of it. Bravehearts.org. Uh, they can, you know, get to me that way easily as well. Uh, if they want to talk, uh, if anyone, uh, you know, feels like, hey, I, I feel like I have the qualifications to be a mentor right now. I'd love to talk with you about mentor training. Would love to talk with you about that. And if you're if you're looking for help, we have group mentoring sessions that uh, that I lead using you know technology like this. Uh, we're, we're doing a lot of the similar things that you guys are doing, uh, except. Uh, we don't have the face-to-face groups that you do, which is what I am very envious of, uh, mm. of Samson uh, Society for, because I think that's so essential. But one thing we do uh, try to do is to encourage guys to find those those groups mm. uh, wherever they can. So hopefully, we'll be able to work together in the future and uh, just give guys more tools to be able to, to get well. And yeah. if you want to check out some of Michael's books, you can just go to Amazon. Or are they on yeah, your you site? Go to Amazon. Uh, they're on our site as well. Okay, yeah. there you yeah. go. So one-stop shop. Just go to there you the go. website. Nate, what do you got as we wrap up? We're reaching the end of our time here. I don't know. I, this has just been such a refreshing uh, season for me. Ever since uh, Michael and I uh, connected there at the Radical Mentoring Conference, uh, it, it, I, I, I really feel like there's a new season here for Samson. Mm. And uh, I, how, how great it is to walk the road together, whoever God brings along, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. 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 So let's see where this road goes. God's in charge. Well, I think we, we've just about come to the end of our time, haven't we, Aaron? We have. Yeah. But I, I, uh, I do hope, Michael, I'm going to extract from you, as I often do, uh, our guests a promise to return. You'll come back for, for a follow-up conversation. I hope several. Absolutely. Would yeah. love to. All right. Okay. Well, then until next time, uh, I'm Nate. I'm Aaron. And I'm our a pirate. <laughs> <laughs> right. I am now, right? All right. And we're your buddies on the Pirate Monk Podcast. We'll see you next time. Whoa. Sings along.